V skeleton. There are two major divisions in the skeleton, and we said this last time, axial skeleton and appendicular skeleton. The axial skeleton is composed by the skull, vertebral column, and thoracic cage. So axial skeleton, as the name says, is in the middle, in the midline. It's like the axis of the body. And it's at the same time support, support of the head, the trunk. And to the axial skeleton is where the upper and lower limbs will connect to. Third, important function of protection because the head, the skull, will protect the brain. The vertebral column will protect the spinal cord. And the thoracic cage, the important organs of the thoracic cavity, heart and lungs. Two different colors for axial skeleton in green and yellow, the appendicular skeleton. And the main components are labeled here, the names of these bones. And axial skeleton, we're going to do this first. We're going to study the skull. And if you see in the graph, the skull is divided in two groups of bones. One group that form the cranium and another group of bones that are the facial bones. Then we have the vertebral column. sacrum and the thoracic cage including the ribs, sternum, and thoracic vertebrae. So that's what we're going to do first. We're going to describe all the bones of the cranium, facial bones, and vertebral column and thoracic cage. That's a different view from the back. So let's start with the skull. We said cranial bones form the cranium and the facial bones. We can divide the skull, as I said last time, tracing the line in this way, and we have cranium, bones of the cranium, and bones of the face. <coughs> cranium is divided in two. The cranium vault, or calvaria, and the cranial base, which is the inferior aspect of the skull. The skulls that we are uh, studying in the lab, they are open. When we do this, we say we open the calvaria. We open the cranial vault. So that kind of lid that you remove, that what the calvaria is, the cranial vault. Superior, lateral, posterior part of the skull. And the base is everything that remains there. When you see all this, the floor of the cavity that you see inside. This is a view of the base, cranial base. And in the cranial base, if we see it like this, removing the, the cranial vault, we recognize three spaces. Three spaces called fossa. The anterior cranial fossa, the middle cranial fossa 
and the posterior cranial fossa. These spaces, they house main parts of the brain, cerebrum, cerebellum. As we see here, the anterior cranial fossa, the anterior cranial fossa is mostly for the frontal lobe of the cerebrum. The middle cranial fossa is for the temporal lobe of the cerebrum. And the posterior cranial fossa is mostly for the cerebellum. So those are the main contents of these three fossae of the cranial base. Fossa means space. So this is the list of cranial bones. The frontal bone, parietal bones, which are two, left and right, occipital, temporal bones, left and right, one sphenoid and one ethmoid bone. So let's start describing one by one and highlighting some of the bone markings and explaining why those bone markings are there and what for. Starting with the frontal bone. The frontal bone is the one that is part of the forehead of the forehead. The inferior part of the frontal bone is called the supraorbital margins. This is actually the border, the upper border of your orbit that is part of the frontal bone. That's the inferior part of the frontal bone. Supraorbital foramen or supraorbital notch, and if you see in your uh, Handout, you see the frontal bone, bone marking that you should identify is the supraorbital foramen or notch. What is that for? It allows an artery and a nerve, supraorbital artery and nerve, they pass through this notch on their way to the forehead. Where are they coming from? They are coming from inside the orbit. They're coming from inside the orbit and then they come out and get in that notch of foramen and spread in the skin and planes of the forehead. Supraorbital artery and nerve pass through the supraorbital foramen or notch. You have these pictures in your textbooks and lab manuals. And the best way of studying the bones is get a picture or get a copy or in your same books, you highlight the frontal bone and look for the bone markings that you are supposed to study and highlight them in the picture so you're sure that you identify them supraorbital foramen and notch and then you go to the bone and see it in the bone find it in the bone and and identify it Parietal bones. Parietal bones are two, left and right. And the parietal bones, when they get together and 
get fused with the frontal bone and occipital bone, which is posterior, they determine lines which are actually joints. Whenever two bones get together, we call that a joint. Um, and these joints are called sutures. We're going to study them again when we study, study some joints. Uh, and we see it's a type of joint. These sutures are four. First suture is called coronal suture, and it's between the parietal bones and the frontal bone. Coronal suture between the parietal bones and frontal bone. And see it in the picture. Let's look for this picture right here. If you see the skull from a lateral view, the coronal suture is a line in between the frontal bone and the parietal bone. This is from the right side, but if you go to the left, you see also that left side of the coronal suture. Second suture is called sagittal suture. As the name says, it's in the midline, and it connects both parietal bones, right and left parietal bones. In the picture, we can see them here. Sagittal suture connecting the two parietal bones. Now these lines are not regular, it's all regular then uh, because of the nature of the growth and development of these bones during um, early childhood. Third, lambdoid. Lambdoid suture. Between parietal bones and occipital bone. And the name comes from the lambda, the letter of the Greek alphabet, lambda, which is something like this. And we see that here. Occipital bone. So the lambdoid suture goes in this way. This line, occipital with parietal, occipital with parietal. And you can see the lambda, lambdoid suture. And the fourth suture is called squamous. Squamous suture between the parietal and temporal bone. There are two temporals, two parietals, so this is seen in both sides, right and left. And we can see it here. Squamous suture between the parietal and temporal bone. Squamous suture. <coughs> Occipital bone. Occipital bone is posterior cranial uh, cranium, the bone of the posterior cranium, and articulates with parietal both 
temporal, and a sphenoid. The main marking here, and that's what you have in your in your handout, are the foramen magnum, which means large hole, the big hole. And that's for the connection of the brain with the spinal cord. In both sides of the foramen magnum, we can find and see occipital condyles. There are two surfaces that will articulate with the first vertebra, the first vertebra of the vertebral column. Under the occipital condyle, there is a, a small hole called hypoglossal canal, that's for a cranial nerve. And the external occipital protuberance is a protrusion just superior to the foramen magnum. So let's see in the pictures how they look. Here's the occipital bone. The external occipital protuberance is this bony prominence that we have here in the occipital, which can be easily palpated. If you get your, in your head, the midline, you go to the back and you get closer a little bit before your neck, you find like a depression. Well, that's bony prominence there called the occipital protuberance. Right before it goes like this. And that's important because in kids, for instance, when uh, uh, the, the kids are brought for a physical examination, one of the things that we do is to measure the head circumference. And so we put the tape around and we have to feel the external occipital protuberance. And that's where the tape has to go and also around the forehead. So there's a bone marking that is important to recognize. And the foramen magnum can be seen from here and the occipital condyles. We'll always get lost here. Occipital condyles are these two surfaces here, one and two. And that's for connection or contact with the first vertebrae. We have the foramen magnum, the big hole, of the occipital bone. And another view of this prominence, the external occipital protuberance. And that's how you see it in the real skull. Maybe hard to see the sutures in some of the skulls because these bones actually fuse to each other with the time. Um, but it's better to see this in the real bone instead of like a photograph like this where you cannot see very much. Temporal bones. Two bones we said, right and left. Individual bone is seen like this. And if you see in your um, handout, you see a temporal bone with many bone markings, up to eight. Well, we have some single temporal bones there in the boxes, so you can see them later. And this highlights some of the things. The zygomatic process, zygomatic process, this little projection that comes uh, out of this temporal bone, and it connects to the zygomatic bone, which is the bone of the cheek. Then we have the mastoid process. Mastoid process is more posterior, and 
easily palpable here behind the ear, behind the ear you find bony prominence, that is the mastoid process. Styloid process, styloid comes from needle, so it looks like a needle-like projection, which cannot be palpated, but it can be seen in the bone. We have the external acoustic meatus, that's for the ear, external canal. And the other markings, like jugular foramen, stylomastoid foramen, carotid canal, can be seen from the other side. And it's not, cannot be seen in this picture. So we see the temporal bone here, articulated with the rest of the cranial bones. Mastoid process, styloid process, external acoustic meatus, and this is a view that allows us to see the the rest of the markings of the temporal bone. So number six, jugular foramen. The jugular foramen is here, and is this opening, foramen means hole, for the jugular vein. This is the opening that allows the jugular vein that comes from the inside of the brain, inside of the cranium. Stylomastoid foramen can be seen from the other side. And carotid canal, carotid canal is another thing that it's not labeled here, but it has to be seen with the in the bone. Here is the other view from inferior aspect, where we can see the stylomastoid foramen here. The name stylomastoid foramen means that it's in between the styloid process and the mastoid process. It's a little hole in between the mastoid process and the styloid process, which is here. Carotid canal can be seen here. It's right next to the styloid process. And the jugular foramen is right behind the carotid canal. This is an inferior view. An inferior view. Carotid canal is for the carotid artery. The carotid artery is a big artery that comes in both sides of the neck and it gets into the cranial cavity to provide blood vessel circulation to the brain. And so there's a hole where it goes through to reach the cranial cavity. And that's the carotid canal. Sphenoid bone. This bone is complex. It's in your handout letter H, sphenoid bone. It's a keystone bone. It actually articulates with almost all the other cranial bones. Important markings to mention here, cella torsica and hypophyseal fossa. For what? For a gland, a gland called the pituitary gland. Pituitary gland is a very important gland. We'll see that in the endocrine system. It is located in that space of the sphenoid bone. Cella torsica. The markings of the sphenoid, greater winds, lesser winds, pterygoid process, 
and some foramina or holes. Foramina is a plural for foraming, which are the optic canals, superior orbital fissure, foramen rotundum, oval, and spine nose. Let's see that in the pictures. Here's a view of the sphenoid bone. We have some sphenoid bones there, uh, singles. You can see them in all these markings. Greater winds. Greater wind is, is all this. It looks like a butterfly or like a bat. Lesser wind is much smaller, like this, like this. Cella torsica. The cella torsica is all this. The space inside is called the hypophyseal fossa of the cella torsica. So this little space. Right where the circle is, is where the pituitary gland sits. And this is a view, superior view. So you can see this as part of the cranial base, seen from the top, this bone. The other uh, markings, the foramina, and it goes in this direction, from anterior to posterior, first foramen rotundum, foramen oval, and foramen spinosum. Here's rotundum, oval, and spinosum. So the three in that order, rotundum, oval and spinal. So what are those holes for? Those are for nerves, cranial nerves, important cranial nerves that come from the brain and they reach the face, the eyes, and the upper teeth. Optic canal is in front of the cella torsica. That's for the optic nerve, the nerve that goes to the eyeballs. And this is the other view, the posterior view. The posterior view where we can see other markings like the lesser wind. That's a different view of the lesser wind and the greater wind. Ethmoid. We also have some ethmoid bones there. The ethmoid is hard to see because it's in the very center of the cranium. And usually in the skulls you don't get to see it because it's fused with all the bones. You have to see it individually. We can see part of it from the cranial vase. In the cranial vase we see the cribiform plates and the crista galli. Cribiform plates are in the anterior cranial fossa also the crista galli. Cribiform plate is a plate that contains a lot of holes, small holes. What for? If you go to the other side, you will be in the nasal cavity, in the roof of the nasal cavity. So this is for olfactory nerves going through these small holes of the cribiform plate. And the crista galli is like a little spine, a crest, that is for attachment of a membrane of the brain called the dura mater. Perpendicular plate 
is part of the nasal septum. And inside these bones, we have air cells, so spaces, spaces with air that are called edmoidal air cells. We'll see later that those are part of what we call paranasal sinuses. So this is a view of the edmoid bone, the crista galli, and the cribiform plates are seen from the base of the cranium. Perpendicular plate in the midline, so it's a long spine that gets all the way down to the nasal septum that divides both nasal cavities. And inside these two big portions of the bone, we have edmoidal air cells. Here is to see the cribiform plate called cribiform foramina here. Well, here you go, edmoid bone and cribiform plate and crista galli. Crista galli, anterior crinafosa is seen like this, and in both sides of the crista galli, these plates with many holes called the cribiform plate. Those are part of the ethmoid bone. And sutural bones. What are sutural bones? Sutural bones are small kind of plates, little plates, irregular, that appear within sutures. Here are two sutural bones, these little pieces in between the sutures. Sometimes you will see, and some skulls show that. They are uh, separated bones, but they don't have any particular function. This is just a description of, of the cranial bones some particular type. In some people, not everyone have those. Facial bones. Mandible, which is the only one that is single, the rest come in pairs. The other one single is the vomer. So these two are single, the rest come in pairs. Maxillary bones, zygomatic bones, nasal bones, lacrimal, palatine, and inferior nasal conchae. So let's see where these bones are located. Starting with the mandible. The mandible, one single bone. The U-shaped bone, lower jaw, and it has a body and two arms called rami. So all these markings are described, and this is what you have in your handout also the body, the mandibular angle, coronoid process, which is insertion for a muscle called temporalis muscle, condylar process that connects to the temporal bone in a temporal mandibular joint, as a connection of the jaw, and some foramina. So let's see the picture how it looks. So here we have the bone, the jaw, or mandible. The body of the mandible is all this area. The angle is just this. And this is a ramus or arm that goes superiorly. Then in this part we have condylar process 
and the condylar process is part of this joint, temporomandibular joint, the joint with the temporal bone. Thanks to this joint is that we can open and close. In front of the coronoid or condylar process, we have another process called coronoid process. This is for insertion of the temporalis muscle. So a muscle comes here and inserts the temporalis muscle. This temporalis muscle is a muscle of mastication or chewing. So when we open and close, biting, the temporal bone is the one that pulls the mandible up and down. Foramina. In the inner aspect, we see a, a hole, mandibular foramen, in the inner aspect of the ramus. This is the hole for a nerve, a nerve that comes to innervate the lower teeth. So all these lower teeth, they receive innervation that goes through the nerve entering the mandibular foramen. There's another small hole here for another nerve called mental foramen. You can see this from an anterior view. Here we see the mandible with mental foramen in both sides. That's all we can see from the front. Maxilla, maxilla or maxillary bone. Most important thing about the maxilla, the upper teeth are held in here to the maxillary bone. There is an air space inside called the maxillary sinus, which is inside the maxilla. We'll see a picture how they look. And an opening for nerves and blood vessels. And this is what you have in your handout, the infraorbital foramen, which is right under the orbit, belonging to the maxilla. Here we have a maxilla. You see the location and the facial group of bones. The infraorbital foramen is here. What is that for? For nerve. A nerve that comes out from inside, actually coming from the brain, and it gets through that hole to the face, to the skin of the face. This part, which is cut, it's a process called zygomatic process because it connects to the zygomatic bone. Here's the orbit surface. So this maxilla is part of the orbit, actually the floor of the orbit. And we can see all the upper teeth attached to the maxilla. There's a, um, a view from the low, from the inferior aspect of the maxilla. If you see this part here, the maxilla has this palatine process, which is this square right here. It's part of the palate, so the roof of the mouth, that bony and hard surface is called the palatine process and it belongs to the maxilla. Now right behind the palatine process there is in green here a small square which is called the palatine bone which is a bone that you have in your handout in the item I. 
the palatine bone. And from this inferior view, you can also see the letter J in your list, vomer, which is here. The vomer in blue, which is part of the nasal septum. You can see it from this inferior view. Zygomatic bones, the bones of the cheek. The zygomatic bone. In blue here, it connects to the temporal bone and it connects to the maxilla. And it's right there on the area of the cheek, known as the cheekbone. Nasal bones are two little bones, two plates, located in the root of the nose. That they articulate to the maxilla and to the forehead, to the frontal bone. They are part of the bridge of the nose. We know the bridge of the nose, that part is known as the bridge of the nose. Here we can see these nasal bones from a lateral view in purple, these two squares, the bridge of the nose. Palatine, we saw some palatine, part of the palatine, and that, that was called the horizontal plate, covering one-third of the heart palate. But it has a perpendicular plate that is part of the nasal cavity and a small part of the orbit. The vomer, we said, is part of the nasal septum, the other single bone as well as the mandible. Now, let's see the nasal cavity, because in the nasal cavity we see the junction of most of these little bones. Here is the lateral, the lateral wall of the nasal cavity. Look at this skull here showing us the sections. And this is the lateral, so imagine you cut the head in the midline, and then you see in the side of the nasal cavity. Lateral wall. So what we see here? First we see the edmoid bone. The edmoid bone is part of the nasal cavity. So all this square is the edmoid bone. Then we see this green piece, which is the inferior nasal concha. It's a separated bone. We see the nasal bone. And here we see the palatine, the perpendicular plate that is part of the wall of the nasal cavity. And of course, in purple, all this will be the maxilla or maxillary bone. And even the sphenoid bone can be seen from here. All this in purple, this is the cella torsica, the hypophyseal fossa of the sphenoid bone. And now this is a view of the nasal septum. So this wall that divides right and left nasal cavity and the septum is composed by three components. First, the perpendicular plate of the edmoid bone, that's one. The vomer, which is in blue here, 
and anteriorly is septal cartilage. It is cartilage. So two pieces of the septal nasal septum are bone and one piece is cartilage. This is the one that usually dislocates or break when we have a deviation of the nasal septum that usually happens in sports. Uh, what happens is a dislocation of this joint here between the cartilage and the uh, perpendicular plate of the edmoid or here with the vomer. And it can be easily corrected or realigned or reduced. But if there is a fracture of the vomer, then the story is different. The treatment may be different. But it's not common. Usually what happens is the cartilage dislocates from the other two bony components. An inferior nasal concha, we describe it as a separated bone here in green. Completely separated, inferior nasal concha. You can see this from an anterior view of the skull and both nasal cavities coming out of the lateral wall. You can see the little ridges called the nasal concha. The edmoid bone contains the superior in the middle and the inferior nasal concha is a separated bone. So here you see edmoid bone, superior nasal concha, middle nasal concha, but inferior nasal concha is a separated bone. Hyoid bone. This is a very neglected bone. You usually don't study and describe it. It's a single bone. It's not connected to any other bone. It's kind of floating. Not actually floating because it's connected to muscles of the base of the tongue and the pharynx and neck muscles. You can see the hyoid bone in the articulated bones and the whole skeletons. And they have this hyoid and it's connected with the wire. The orbits are the spaces where the eyeballs are. And they are formed by up to seven cranial bones. Frontal, sphenoid, zygomatic, maxilla, palatine, lacrimal, and ethmoid. All these bones contri contribute with a small piece of it to form all this eye socket called orbit. But it's important because if one of these bones breaks, like in some people have accidents and trauma in the head, they may break, for instance, the maxilla. They have a fracture of the maxilla here, the face. Well, the maxilla is part of the floor of the orbit, so that's where the eyeball is resting. And these people come with double vision. Why? Because this one of the eyeballs is dropping like one millimeter. And that produces a disalignment, and these people come with double vision because of this uh, involvement of the maxilla in the orbit. As we see here, all the components of the orbit. The floor of the orbit is usually very important because if, if it breaks, then we have a problem. Also the zygomatic bone. You see here, that zygomatic bone and the maxilla, all are components of the floor or the, of the orbit. So this is what we describe as a nasal cavity with several bones. Some things to emphasize here. The roof of the nasal cavity, it correlates with the cribriform plates of the ethmoid. The lateral walls, we have seen the 
alcance y et muy bon inferiores alcance what are the conche? there are ridges of bone they are covered by mucosa membrane and they help for breathing when we breathe the air will get humidified warmed and it will not irritate your throat or your airways that's the point of this Turbines, they're also called turbines. They increase the turbulence of the air and humidify, moisten the, uh, the air that we are breathing. And the nasal septum, we saw this in the picture. Vomer, perpendicular plate of the ethmoid, and septal cartilage are the components of this nasal or, or nasal septum. Paranasal sinuses. Paranasal sinuses are spaces of air located in inside five bones of the skull. We see paranasal sinuses in the frontal bone, sphenoid bone, ethmoid, and in both maxillary bones. What are these air-filled spaces for? These are the functions. Warm, humidify the air. They help to lighten the skull because this is airspace to make the bone lighter. And they serve as a resonance chamber for the voice. If you notice sometimes people that have a very loud voice and low voice, they usually have the face here, very prominent cheeks, and the forehead also, these supraorbital margins, very prominent. It's more space of air more resonance of the, uh, the voice, better chambers for resonance. From anterior view, this is how they look. The frontal sinus is located inside the frontal bone. The maxillary sinus is the biggest, the largest of all. And the two other that are in small size are the ethmoidal air cells from the ethmoid bone and a sphenoid. The sphenoid also have an airspace called the sphenoidal sinus. And from a lateral view, we can see them in this aspect. See, the ethmoidal air cells are in the very center of the cranium, and the sphenoid goes more posterior. And you see the maxillary sinus is the largest of all. Maxillary sinus is the largest, followed by the frontal, and then sphenoid and ethmoidal air cells. Some people may have sinusitis, which is an infection of the paranasal sinuses. Well, the, these spaces get infected and there's a large production of mucus and uh, congestion, pain, headaches because of the frontal sinus, face pain because of the maxillary sinus, And let's go to the vertebral column. In the vertebral column, also called the spine or the spinal column, we'll find vertebrae. 26 irregular bones called vertebrae. And they are divided in five regions. Regions are cervical, which contains seven of these bones, seven vertebrae. 
thoracic 12, lumbar region with 5 vertebrae, and the sacrum, which is only one bone, but if you see carefully, is a fusion of 5 vertebrae. And finally, the coccyx, which is another group of small vertebrae we got fused during the development. So individual vertebrae we see in three regions, cervical, thoracic, and lumbar. Seven cervical, 12 thoracic, and five lumbar. The spine is the axis of the body. This is the place where that supports most of the weight of the body. And after the development, it acquires certain curvatures, which are physiological. And they are cervical and lumbar curvature, which are concave posteriorly, and thoracic and sacral, which are convex posteriorly. We better see this in a picture. Here we see the seven cervical vertebrae. We name this with the letter C, followed by the number, so C1 to C7. Same for the thoracic region, where we have 12 vertebrae. And for the lumbar, which are five. This is an anterior view. Now, if you see it from a lateral view, you will see the curvatures. This concave curvature is a cervical curvature. Convex, posteriorly, thoracic. This is a lumbar curvature, and finally the sacral curvature. So these curvatures are acquired when, during the growth and development, kids start working. From being in a position completely horizontal, they start sitting up, and they start standing up and walking, and the spine will acquire these curvatures, which are physiological, as I said. In between the vertebrae, there are these cartilage structures called intervertebral discs. They are pads sandwiched in between two vertebrae. The main function is shock absorption. Thanks to them is that the vertebrae won't hit each other and break, especially when we jump in the weight of our body. It has two components, a fibrous ring known as annulus fibrosus, and the inner part is called nucleus pulposus because it's like a gelatin. And the fibrous ring is the one that contains that gelatin. This is like a cushion pad. You see, here in the picture is in between the vertebrae in blue. And in the frontal view, or top view, we can see the fibrous ring, annulus fibrosus, and the central part, darker, called the nucleus pulposus. Fibrocartilage, that's how we described in the tissues part. If this annulus fibrosus or fibrous ring for some reason breaks, and that's what people have sometimes when they make a wrong movement, uh, or lift the weight without the proper technique. 
this fibrous ring may be, get collapsed in between two vertebrae and break. And if that ring breaks, well, the gelatin inside, the nucleus pulposus, will bulge in this way. And what's right next to it? Well, a nerve, a spinal nerve coming out right next to the uh, fibrocartilage or intervertebral disc. And this is what we commonly call the pinched nerve. This is really painful and it's a problem in many people. We call that hernia, herniated disc because of that bulging uh, part that compresses the nerve. Here we see an, uh, an image in the study, an MRI, where we see this vertebrae into vertebral discs, normal here, all fine between the vertebrae. All of a sudden we see this. That's a herniated disc. And it's compressing a nerve that is coming out. These are abnormal curvatures. Physiological curvatures we have seen, but these are abnormal. Scoliosis is one of them. Scoliosis is an abnormal lateral rotation of the spine. That usually happens in the thoracic region. It's in the thoracic region, so it means that at some point it may cause problems for breathing. Because one thoracic cavity, one pleural cavity where the lungs are, is larger than the other. And so one of the lungs are not working so well and it may produce uh, problems with respiration later in life. Kyphosis. Kyphosis is an excessive uh, thoracic curvature. It usually happens in people with osteoporosis. And lower doses is an exaggerated lumbar curvature. Maybe the result of some diseases, or maybe physiological in pregnancy because of the additional weight that the body has to carry, and that increases the lower doses or the lumbar curvature. And we see them like this. See the scoliosis? The spine is like this. At the thoracic level. And so imagine inside the thoracic, the lung here will be like this. And the other lung, like this. So it causes problems with respiration later in life. This can be corrected if detected on time. Usually that's the reason why they are screening for scoliosis in all the schools. Yes? I have a quick question about the last, uh, the last picture. Uh -huh. Yeah, the, this one, if we can trace the, the spine here, would be something like this. And at this point, it goes in this way. This are excessive lower doses. This is the curvature that is exaggerated, lower doses. And that's because, because of the pregnancy, an excessive weight being carried here. It's like if you lift a box or something here and carry it like this, you will necessarily have to do this in order to balance your, your body. And that's exactly what happens during pregnancy. Little by little, the body gets adjusted and increasing the lower doses. But in some people, it's exaggerated, even without pregnancy. And that may cause pain and other problems.
And this is kyphosis, usually happens because of osteoporosis, the excessive thoracic curvature. So the structure of the vertebrae. The structure of the vertebrae is common for all different types, all regions. There's a body, there's an arch, a foramen, and if we talk about many vertebrae, we will see a vertebral canal and intervertebral foramen. So let's see a picture to see all these parts. This is a generic description of one of vertebrae, whatever region it is, cervical, thoracic, or lumbar. First, this is posterior spinous process. Spinous process, that is a part of bone that we touch when we touch the back of a person in the midline and we feel that bony prominence, but well, we are just touching the spinous process. This is the part that we touch in the back. Process, because it's a projection. Spinous process is like a spine. Then there are two transverse processes to both sides, which serve for articulation with maybe ribs in the thoracic region. The body of the vertebrae is this big part, and that's where the intervertebral discs are located, one on top of the other vertebrae. Two arches. The connection between the transverse process and the body is called the pedicle. And that connection between the spinous process and the transverse process is called the lamina. And in the very central part, we have the vertebral foramen. If you put all the vertebrae together, you can easily see through all of these foramina, and you could describe that as a canal, vertebral canal. Spinous process, transverse process too, and there are articular processes which are for connection with the vertebrae on top and at bottom. These are the articular facets that are for connection with the vertebrae on top and the vertebrae under. Cervical vertebrae from C1 to C7. Now, C1 and C2 are special, they have special shape, but C3 to C7, they share these features. They are oval shape, body, C7, the spinous process, are split, and the vertebral foramen is large and triangular. And this marking only belongs to the cervical vertebrae. It's called transverse foramen. That's the foramen for a passageway, works as a passageway for the vertebral artery. The C7 is called vertebral prominence because it's that 
prominence that you can feel easily in almost everyone. If you touch your neck, when you get to the thorax or the shoulder, then you find like a bump. Well, that is the spinous process of the C7. These are characteristics of the cervical, thoracic, and lumbar vertebrae. There are differences that are explained in this graph. So let's finish with this description, quick description, so you can go uh, continue with the lab and see this. First, cervical. If you see this vertebrae from the top or from the bottom, you see the differences. The body in the cervical is smaller if you compare it to the thoracic and to the lumbar. The lumbar is the one that has a bigger body. Then, transverse foramen is only present in the cervical vertebrae. You don't see that in the other two, in the other two, thoracic or lumbar. And if you are presented with single vertebrae in the exam and the question says which is cervical, you should look for the transverse foramen. If you find it, that is a cervical vertebrae. Spinous process is bifid in the cervical vertebrae, except the C7, which is only one. Spinous process in the thoracic is more prominent, more longer, it's longer. And in the lumbar, the spinous process is much, much shorter. And from a lateral view, if you get the vertebrae and put it like this, then you can tell the difference the lumbar vertebrae, they have a short, wide spinous process. The thoracic has a long, pointing downwards spinous process. And the cervical is a bifid spinous process, which is not so long and more horizontal. One thing that you will see only in the thoracic vertebrae are these superior costal facets because the thoracic vertebrae are the only ones that connect to ribs. That's how you differentiate. Okay, so let's stop here. We can finish this on Thursday where we will do the appendicular skeleton main description of the bones. And now the time is for you. Get the bones, there are skulls, there are single bones here. There are some spines also at the bottom. And you can get these three articular skeletons also for this. Yeah. What's that? I will pass around. Oh, okay.